Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Thanks be to the scriptural God who spoke long ago, once and for all time in the Syrian wilderness, long before the occupying powers of the modern world. Once again, when he spoke, he did not speak English. This point is well worth repeating at this very moment in history, since this God spoke Biblical Semitic specifically to prick, sting, incite, and goad those who are glorious upon the earth. To be fair, at the time he spoke, no one spoke English, so technically he was not making fun of English. English didn't matter to him nor did French or German. Now, that is a fact, and facts are useful. At that time, the same God taught our forefathers, who were not faithful, that the matter at hand, his dabar, is not complex. We need only hear and follow his voice Following his voice is not a sensitive matter because in his story of the generations of the heavens and the earth, the human being is of less importance to him than the fish in the sea. More than that, in all the wonder of God's creation, the human being is only a small insignificant part. There is a deep sentiment in the Middle East and among Arabs, Bassem Yusuf explained recently, that the West does not look at us as equals. Yusuf asked ChatGPT a simple question. Do Israelis deserve to be free? The machine replied, yes. He then rephrased the question. Do Palestinians deserve to be free? The machine, created by human hands, a theology of human artistry, fashioned after the image of English-speaking settler colonials, replied, it's complex. Beloved in Christ, it is neither complex nor sensitive. For those who hear the voice of the shepherd, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, The answer to both questions is simple and straightforward. The answer is no. No one deserves to be free because all of us treat each other like shit. There is only one God. He alone is our king, our provider, and the possessor of the land. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death, and I who give life. 
I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. For there is none like you, O God, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. La ilaha illallah. To God be the victory. In the God of Scripture, I place all my hope against hope for the sake of the poor. Because, like you, Bassam, my dad came here from Egypt. I know that look in your eyes when you are trying to reason with stupid. I recognize the frustration that will eventually turn into dismay and, God forbid, pain. Believe me, brother, no matter how much sense you make or how hard you argue logically and intelligently for peace, it ain't gonna work. Pierce and his ilk are for war, and they don't even see it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 4. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 506 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, I came out swinging hard against postmodernism. And I want to be very clear. I have felt this way since I was a little kid. I felt this way in high school. I felt this way in college. And my stand has only grown deeper through education. And I am reacting very specifically to what has become a deep crisis in our society. In some ways, it's a credit to my dad, who always had a very clear perspective, a very clear vision as an immigrant a man who I always refer to as an educated man from a poor country, a logical person, an engineer, who always questioned everything. But honestly, it also has to do with the fact that my mom was herself a refugee from the West Bank, from Bethlehem. And I always understood that the way the corporate colonial media, the children of Cain, to put it in scriptural terms, I always understood that the way they spoke about the Middle East was a lie. I won't say more than that because we're not interested in politics. We're interested in scripture. But it has always been clear to me that the way the world is discussed when I was a kid, the way it was discussed on television and on the radio is a lie. And the way people would speak was disconnected from what is actually true. And there is such a thing as true. There's such a thing as what is factually correct and what is a lie. And what I always found disturbing 
it became extremely disturbing in my philosophy courses at the University of Minnesota, especially metaphysics. What I always found deeply disturbing, Rich, was the rejection of epistemic certainty. The way in which postmodernists in philosophy challenge the idea that there is such a thing as objective knowledge is absurd. Chomsky talks about this. The absurdity of dismissing objective knowledge has caused damage to the poor, and we're seeing it unfold before our eyes in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East right now and in other places we don't talk about. We have a duty in scholarship, in our work as pastors and teachers, to objective knowledge and factuality for the sake of the poor. That's what exegesis is all about. It's not about what we bring to the text. It's about what God commands in the text for the sake of the poor. There are so many people right now working so hard to share facts, and there are so many people working twice as hard to obscure facts using the artistry and the theology and the trickery of this postmodern rejection of epistemic certainty in order to further the propaganda of what George Orwell and Hannah Arendt and so many beautiful people referred to as totalitarianism. That's the bottom line. Our hope is not in political activism. Our hope is in education. I was finishing seminary and about ready to begin my PhD in Hebrew and Old Testament. I was sitting in a bar with a coworker who had a PhD in biochemistry. And I said, if we were to ask everyone in here their opinion about biochemistry, they would all keep their mouth shut. Don't ask me. I don't know anything about biochemistry. If you go around and ask every single person in this bar their opinion on the Bible, every single person would have an answer. Now, do they know more about the Bible than biochemistry? Maybe a little bit. They know some of the names, at least, in the Bible, and they don't know the names in biochemistry. And that's about it. But about the basic data, barely a difference in knowledge. That's where we see this start to break down. The biblical text is the data set, and that's what we have to study. And when I would be in the classroom in the early 2000s, I would get a student occasionally who would say, well, you know, as many people as read the Bible, as many opinions as you get, and there's no way to say that one person is right and one person is wrong. And I would say, I beg to differ. One can say that person is wrong if it contradicts the text. If you have a theory that contradicts the data, whether biochemistry or Bible, you have to let it go. That's not a valid theory. So come up with a better one. People say, eh, we've got to throw out the Bible. It contradicts itself. But for me, it's a data set. Every data set has contradictory data or seemingly contradictory data. Our job as biblical readers, as this image I like, as visitors to this biblical world created by the text, we're here to understand 
what is happening in this world, even if we might not understand it in the first place, we have to get to know it and understand maybe what appears to be contradictions are something that takes further understanding. I think your example is paramount, which is why there's no distinction between submission to the text and submission to one's neighbor. You must not create words and start talking. You must pay attention and submit. When you ignore what's there, when you ignore factuality staring you in the face and start talking, that's when you create your gods, your ideologies, your theologies, your whatever. This is the point I was making about the theology of atheists. It's all fine and dandy to criticize religion, which everyone loves to criticize the patriarchy. When you criticize the patriarchy, you're painting with a broad brush in order to dismantle someone else's authority so that you can lift up your own. It's just a new kind of theosis. You're eliminating God the Father so you can make yourself a new God. That's all it is. It's the same old nonsense. You're no different than the Greco-Romans. You're the new Greco-Romans. That's my critique of progressivism. It's just another Greco-Romanism with a different shade of paint, but it's all the same nonsense. The only thing that works is submission. You submit to what the Bible is saying. Or if you're not a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim submitting to the Quran, if you're a nothing, at least submit to the facts on the ground. And if you do so, you will find yourself submitting to the suffering of the poor. I'm fine with that. But when you don't submit to the facts on the ground, which is the Adama, then you find yourself stepping on Jesus instead of submitting to God the Father with him on the ground. You start blah, 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 blahing as though you know something about what's happening on the ground. Or like your students, Rich, you start blah, 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 blahing as though you know something about what the text says. That's the disaster we're in. And so more bombs get dropped on a small strip of land in one week and more children die and I'm not just talking about Palestinians because there's no such thing as Palestinian life or Israeli life. There's just life. More children have died in one week in the Holy Land than during the entire war between Ukraine and Russia. In one week. And that's with what was tallied last week. And people are posting on Facebook. What are they posting? Blah, 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 blah. Flags and buildings. Nothing changes under the sun. Why? Why is it possible 
for people to give their opinion about what's going on because of the rejection of epistemic certainty and the inability to bow to the Adama, the facts on the ground. You are min afar ha-adam. So what are you talking about? You can't asa and you can't bara. What are you talking about? That's my critique, Rich, for what it's worth. So let's do what your students would not do. Let's bow to the text. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. I would like to just take a moment and talk about a word we skipped over from last week before I jump into verse four. Just do a quick analysis of this term, which is so important, and it relates very much to the work we do on the podcast and to the conversation that we were just having. This word from verse three, evidasken, which means teaching. We talked last week about how beautiful it was that Jesus was teaching from the boat, and it leads into the verse that I just read. I was very curious, because I was doing some work on some of the words in verse 4, I was very curious about how this word is used in the Old Testament, again via the Septuagint. What I discovered is that it is linked frequently to this Hebrew word, Lamed, the Arabic cognate with the same triliteral root, Telemada means in certain contexts in Arabic to be discipled. It comes from the same triliteral root. There is another word in Arabic, ta'allama, which has the same meaning but is not the cognate. But the emphasis always is on being instructed. That's how the Hebrew functions. In Syriac, it is to be put together, to be compiled. Notice, again, the work is being done by the teacher, not the student. Now, in the original use of the triliteral in the Akkadian, who are the forebears of the authors of the Bible, this root, LMD, I'm just going to use the Latin characters to make it easier for our hearers, the root LMD, which corresponds to the Hebrew word lamed and the Arabic telemada, as in telemada an fulan, he was discipled by so and so or discipled from so and so. This triliteral links to a number of interesting Semitic cognates. For example, in Syriac, to be put together, to be compiled. Again, the work is being done by the teacher, not the student. In the Akkadian, remember from the rise of Scripture, the Akkadians were the forebears of those who produced the biblical text. In the Akkadian usage of the same triliteral, we have to stop thinking about the meaning of words which is how it works in the Western mind because you associate vowels with the consonants. In the Akkadian usage of the same triliteral, these three consonants meant to prick, sting, incite, 
or goad, depending on their functional usage, as one would when training an ox, as if to make cattle accustomed to a rule. So it's not simply a question of how it relates to the usage of this term, but you begin to think about how Paul employs this terminology of the Roman household. People love to talk about management at a societal level, but this is a betrayal of the word economia. It's a betrayal even of the word pedagogos. Paul talks about bringing the staff in a Roman household. When Paul talks about these terms, his frame of reference is the Semitic shepherdism of the Syrian wilderness. He is Semiticizing the Roman household. We go the other direction. We take Paul's terminology and we try to civilize it. So, again, when we hear the New Testament talk about teaching, or when we hear Paul talk about the pedagogos, we have to understand the Semitic context, which is the one who holds the staff pricking, sticking, inciting, and goading us as though we are cattle, we are sheep. The work is being done by the teacher. That's the emphasis. Now, this Greek word for nets, diktion, there are a couple of ways that this word appears in the Old Testament, but there is a particular usage that very much aligns with Luke's usage, especially when you take into consideration the word catch, agran in Greek. Agran on its own merits in Greek has several meanings that really validate this term in Hebrew that I'm going to point to in a minute. It can mean hunting, capturing, or trapping a prey, or snaring a prey. Now, in Luke and John also, it's very interesting, it's, it's referred specifically to capturing fish. But the root, which is the alpha rama ro, and then of course you add the alpha at the end as a suffix, it's very typical in Greek, refers to seizing or catching, right? So it makes sense that you would use it for catching fish. But then if you look at this Hebrew word reshet, it's used quite frequently in Ezekiel to refer to God ensnaring. Now in Proverbs, we hear that one cannot catch the birds with a net, but in Hosea, God is able to catch the fowl of the air with a net. He catches his prey with a net. But I find it interesting that it's clear that there's this favor towards the sea creatures out of Genesis. But now as we're shifting towards the human being, it becomes judgment. Now we're shifting to Ezekiel and Hosea. We're going to now make you fishers of men. And now there's this implication of going hunting. 
Yeah, this image is fantastic because as you're talking, I'm thinking about how we're only in chapter five so far, and this is the first time where he's metaphorically describing the job of what they're about to set out to do. And they're talking about letting down the nets, and we'll get to you know how this relates as a metaphor. It's very different than we talked about Matthew. Remember when we were talking about Matthew it was sowing the seed, sowing the seed, sowing the seed, sowing the seed. And here it's about catching fish. It's not about planting the seed. It's about bringing everyone together. And these are not incompatible with each other. I'm not saying they're in competition. What I'm saying is that we have Luke's starting point enriches what we have already learned from Matthew and Mark by starting with this image of catching fish. Now, once Jesus taught on the land, he said, let's get out into the water. (laughs) He's like, let's get out of here and let's go fishing. After he taught the people on the land from the boat, the next place he wanted to go was the deep. And the deep is a famous, the Tahom of the Psalms, of Jonah. This is often a place of the deepest despair. This is the deepest point on earth that the ancient peoples were thinking of. It's as low as it goes, metaphorically. And that's where Jesus was heading. He left the land to go to the deep. Because that's what he says. He says, go out into the deep, the bathos. The bathos is this deep place. And Jesus was going to head there. And this makes sense. Because when you're at the deep, the only one who can help you, the only one that exists there, is fish and God. That's it. And you can't live there very long. Fish are fine there, as we talked about from Genesis 6. But for the human being, God is your only hope there. The fish, you know, they hope in God too, but they're doing just fine. (laughs) God set them up so they're going to be fine under most circumstances. But the human being is very vulnerable. And this is where Jesus wanted to go next after teaching the people on the dry land. I just want to put together some of these images for folks and explain why looking at how these terms link And then being careful to look at the narrative when you look at these interconnected words. So here's an example, Rich, where paying attention to the Greek and not just assuming there's a link in the Hebrew, you see now how the net, specifically reshet, is functional here. The Hebrew is functional in conjunction with the natural meaning of the Greek because there is no correspondence between this word catch, agran, in Greek, and the Septuagint. It doesn't have a link. But its meaning in Greek underscores this idea from Ezekiel and Proverbs. It also appears in Lamentation. But listen to Proverbs. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. Yet, in the examples from Ezekiel, which talk about God as the hunter, ensnaring him and bringing him to Babylon. There's You have it in Ezekiel 12. You have it again in Ezekiel 17. You have repeated examples where God is ensnaring you and bringing you into captivity, which makes sense given the theme of Ezekiel. But it's in Hosea chapter 7, verse 12, where there's this contrast with the reference in Proverbs. In Hosea 7, 12, when they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. How this does or does not impact our hearing of Luke, I don't know. 
But here's why I think it's worth writing down on the margin, so to speak, Rich. Because we're dealing with the sea creatures and the land mammals, the human beings. And if we're paying attention to terminology, the background reading is dealing with the birds, which depend on the land. But it's just something to take note of. But the one who's hunting here is God. He's controlling the hunt because his locum tenens, Jesus, is the one who is giving the orders here. And Simon is being sent out to do the hunting, ultimately hunting human beings. It's a different way of hearing this text because we do with this text what we do with Ukraine and Gaza. We idealize, we philosophize, we theologize. And pretty soon, whatever side you pick, you're fighting for freedom and defending babies instead of submitting to the suffering of God's human animals. You're not hearing what's actually happening in the text. That's my point. There's something happening here that is not self-referential, which is what you do when you bring yourself to the text. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.